This is ASIN, the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism. To find out more, visit asin.ac.uk. Now I'd like to introduce our second speaker this evening, uh, John Longwell, Emeritus Professor of Modern African History at the University of Cambridge and Fellow of Trinity College, Cambridge. His publications include Unhappy Valley, Conflict in Kenya and Africa with Bruce Berman, Mau and Nationhood, Arms, Authority and Narrative, um, co-edited with others. And writing for Kenya, the life and work of Henry Muholia, again co-edited with others. He's currently working with Bruce Berman on the intellectual histories of Kimokinyata and Louis Leakey, with a focus on their imagination of Kikuyu ethnicity. And his scholarly career has culminated gloriously in, in the publication of a chapter anti-colonial nationalism and patriotism in sub-Saharan Africa in the Oxford Handbook of the History of Nationalism, which I had to have edited. And John uh, is going to speak on the theme of Did African Nationalism Continue Imperialism's World Revolution by Other Means? Um, I believe you're going to use some PowerPoint. I'm going to try. Uh, well, I, may I also um, thank the organisers of this conference for having invited me um, and having forced me to use the technology taught to me by my eight-year-old granddaughter um, because um, although I resisted uh, PowerPoint for many years, I think if one's going to try to say quite a lot in a short time, then one needs its assistance. So that's yeah, doesn't work. Um, so, um, I'll start with, with, with a question. Um, what, if anything, uh, did the Imperial Revolution, if it was a revolution, uh, achieve in Africa? What social materials uh, did it bequeath to uh, potential nationalists? What kind of societies uh, could they hope uh, to mobilize? Uh, and could there even be any kind of revolutionary uh, potential? Well, I, I start with a, with a classic quote from my two tutors at Cambridge, one of them a retired bomber pilot and the other a retired tank driver. Um, and in their uh, contribution to the New Cambridge uh, Modern History, published in 1962, um, it, 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 it's a wonderful statement, uh, not a, a lot more opaque than Clausewitz, I think, uh, would, would have approved um, in, in its conclusion. Uh, but the suggestion that imperialism cuffed uh, traditional peoples out of their tradition into the exchange economy and the bureaucratic state, Western strength hustled them into transformation. One by one they were exposed to rapid social change, the transforming of values. Imperialism has been the engine of social change, but colonial nationalism has been its auxiliary between them. They have contrived a world revolution. Nationalism has been a continuation of imperialism by other means. Wonderfully grandiloquent and wonderfully opaque. Um, what might they mean? Well, um, the most ambitious uh, meaning of nationalism as an auxiliary to imperialism's world revolution 
uh, came from uh, Lord Lugard, um, the most famous proconsul, now forgotten, uh, in the British Empire, the governor of Nigeria, who wrote uh, a once famous, now forgotten book in 1922, The Dual Mandate uh, in Tropical Africa, with this, with, with this wonderful uh, self-regarding claim, looking at uh, unrest in both Egypt and in India, if there is unrest and a desire for independence, because we have taught the value of liberty and of freedom, which for centuries these people had not found. Their very discontent is a measure of their progress. Thirty years later, as we shall see, uh, one of his successors as governor of Nigeria was very much less confident uh, in uh, what imperialism could achieve. But what revolutionary claims might imperialists more plausibly make than perhaps uh, Lugard uh, did, uh, and claims that African nationalism might then continue. Um, well, I, I suggest uh, possibly six claims. First, and I think the most important and most, most plausible one, would be simply political rationalization. Cutting Africa out of its non-state, pre-state multiplicity of petty kingdoms with very little uh, sovereignty, uh, its uh, very large slave economies, uh, ethnic migrations, um, all of them really non-states, into 50 colonies, roughly speaking, all of them potential states, as indeed they have since become, and it is, of course, only through statehood that people can conceivably uh, interact with the modern world in anything approaching a degree of, of equality, of, of bargaining power. So I think that is the most plausible thing for a, a revolution in African politics that an imperialist uh, might make. The second uh, claim that they might equally make is that they, the colonial states provided the infrastructures for markets. Africa being, as most people would think, underpopulated uh, in previous centuries uh, with very little uh, economic specialization, a, a great deal of, of household self-sufficiency had very limited markets uh, indeed. But colonial harbors, railways, roads, and then the sciences of agriculture and veterinary uh, uh, Western uh, science uh, provided the kind of infrastructures that would give uh, Africa the external markets that it did not have uh, internally. Economic historians, I think, would say that the transport revolution was the most important one uh, in Africa. Uh, not only bicycles, which was very good for evangelization, uh, but the railway, which cost, cut the cost of porterage, human porterage, by 90% and roads cut the cost of railways by another 50%, making it possible for Africa to export primary products which it had not been able to export before. Principally, its principal export previously had been labor, because labor could walk to the coast. Um, with railways reducing the cost of transport, you could begin to export other things like cotton, coffee, uh, palm oil, uh, and so on. So, Africa was opened to two world markets, not having internal markets of any great size of its own. And then, thirdly, uh, a century before Robinson and Gallagher, Karl Marx had said very much the same thing as they uh, in 1853 with regard to the British Raj in India, that it had freed labor from 
inefficient forms of social dependence um, in the African case from slavery, from patriarchy. Um, there was a slow death of internal African slavery in the early years of the 20th century. Masters became landlords or patrons. Uh, but the principal, I think, uh, economic effect of the uh, reduction of dependence on social hierarchy was the rise of the smallholder, the smallholder peasant. The main export crops could be smallholder crops, whether they were cocoa, coffee, cotton, groundnuts, palm oil, and so on. So a labor market was uh, produced and the rise of the small man was made possible. Fourthly, another plausible claim was that colonial rule made possible the spread of literacy of a non-specialized sort and the growth of world religions, an enormous enlargement of the imaginative scale that Africans uh, could enjoy. Uh, with the import of uh, the Bible, the Quran, uh, with greater access to the Hajj, Africans could read and walk on pilgrimage on their way into world communities out of their very small local uh, communities. Uh, fifthly, there was a great increase in the sum of human happiness if uh, the non-death of infants and mothers um, is uh, an addition to happiness, as surely it is. Family relief, uh, the control of epidemics, it's an enormously rapid uh, population growth from uh, around uh, 1920. The continent of Africa experienced a threefold increase in its population in the 20th century, from about 200 million to about 600 million. And nationalism was, above all, a youth movement, a direct outcome of this imperial medicine and the ability uh, to provide uh, family relief. All these, sixthly, were conditions for capital investment, and therefore perhaps uh, for revolution, if new classes were gathered about new means of uh, production. Um, even left-wing or quasi-Marxist uh, scholars in the 1960s argued that imperialism did not necessarily in Africa lead to underdevelopment, although that was a popular point of view. And my favorite quote in this context comes from the Cambridge Marxist uh, economist Jen Robinson, who used uh, against him famous around 1950, the misery of being exploited by capitalists, she suggested, this is nothing to the misery of not being exploited at all, uh, as Africans were not, it's not by capitalists before that colonial rule. Now, all those changes brought about, uh, as it is claimed, or could be claimed for uh, imperialism, have, of course, uh, been argued um, and uh, disputed. Um, so, what were the more plausible realities rather than claims? Um, take the first political rationalization, which I said was probably the uh, most important of imperialism claims. Um, Africans themselves made their own political rationalizations, and those were by and large not at the state level, not at the national, or not at the potentially national level, but at what we've come to call the ethnic level, or what some people rather rudely call the sub-national 
level. Um, when the British prided themselves on something called indirect rule, that was merely masking their inability to do anything other than to persuade Africans that the ethnic group was the, the group that was the civilizing agent, the socializing agent in, in this new imperial world. It's a gross generalization, but generally speaking, what have very often been very loose associations of, of culture and language and economic specialization became very much more sharply defined under uh, colonial rule, partly as units of local defense, uh, partly for other reasons, largely because of the next four points uh, on uh, my slide. Because the next thing, uh, the provision of marketing structures, while, while true, um, I think most people would now say merely opened Africa to the possibility of producing quite simple primary products, largely vegetable ones, and therefore made it extremely vulnerable to changing global terms of trade. It's true that it's difficult to see what the economic alternatives were. There were, of course, uh, considerable mining enclaves uh, in parts of Africa, largely in the south, uh, but it was difficult to see how one could uh, increase uh, incomes, uh, provide the beginnings of any kind of state organization without the uh, <coughs> primary, simple primary products to the outside world. Um, but while the economic arguments are, 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 are debatable, I, I think the political effects of this dependence on primary production are, are, are fairly certain in that one got the growth of regional specializations according to whatever ecology uh, was suitable either for cocoa or for coffee or, or for cotton, uh, groundnuts and so on. So that one got groundnutting tribes, cocoa growing tribes and so on with their own marketing organizations which were also the basis later of, of political uh, organization. So that um, not only was ethnicity a political rationalization, it was often very often an economic infrastructure as well in, in colonial Africa. Uh, this regional specialization, thirdly, uh, led to, yes, a freeing of a labor, as Marx had praised a century earlier, but it was largely migrant labor from poorer, more distant regions, those which could not get access to railhead or to roads to export whatever it is that they could grow, largely from drier uh, regions, notoriously from uh, French West Africa, light soils, as Lord Salisbury called them in the 1890s, migrating south to the wetter, more forested areas of, of British West Africa, Ghana, Nigeria. Um, so that there was little stabilization of, uh, of a proletariat, largely from African choice. They wanted to keep their, their rural uh, roots. And this largely migrant labor had much the same effect uh, on ethnicity as crop specialization. Chain migrations from one part of Africa to another led to the growth of welfare associations to protect uh, these migrants, long before trade unions were made legal by nervous colonial governments. So again, migrant labor had the same effect, I think, on the hardening of ethnic identities. The fourth thing about literacy and the opening of imaginations to the wider world 
that opening was brought largely by vernacular Bibles. By Bibles translated by devoted missionaries, Protestant missionaries who thought that people could only be Christians if they could read uh, God's Word, supposedly in their own language, uh, which meant that uh, ethnic imaginations were marvelously enlarged to model themselves on the what Adrian Hastings uh, calls uh, the, uh, the, the prototype uh, ethnic nation, the children of Israel. Um, and it is extraordinary if one looks at myths of ethnogenesis, particularly in Eastern Africa now, how often they start in Exodus. We all migrated from Egypt, um, as of course did uh, the children of Israel, the first ethnic nation to really capture the global uh, imagination. And the same is very much true of, of Islam. Because Islam spread, certainly in West Africa and in the East, largely by uh, the, the mechanism of Islamic brotherhoods following local saints. These are precisely the forms of very local, locally focused Islam, which are now most grossly under attack from more fundamentalist uh, Muslims uh, in the Sahel region, as we have seen more recently. So I, I think the idea of opening up African imaginations to a wider world uh, is true, but provided one makes the proviso that it was a very local sense of placing oneself in the world that was, I think, uh, encouraged. Uh, the fifth claim of imperialism um, resulted in such a rapid population growth as has never been seen elsewhere in, in world history. And I don't know whether uh, Arthur would agree with me that uh, the collapse of imperial China in the 19th century was caused largely by very rapid population growth, Africa's population growth in the 20th century was uh, still more rapid. Um, uh, so a very equivocal process, it, it created um, youthful energies, but it also vastly increased it, uh, increased the dependency uh, ratio. No state in the world, no colonial state, no post-colonial state could cope, so that dependent youth increasingly looked back to ethnic supports and alas, now uh, ethnic youth militias are all too easily created out of the unemployment. Um, the sixth uh, point is that if colonial states were potentially international actors, they were incredibly weak. As was illustrated particularly by the failures of late uh, colonial state capitalist development in the era of the Cold War. Um, one's, the, the best known example of course is the expenditure of 56 million pounds on the ground scheme, 56 million pounds in 1950 being rather a large sum of money. Not a single ground was produced. Um, but something was produced, uh, and that was the land um, But uh, for, for reasons which I haven't got time to go into, but could, could be questioned on. Uh, so there was perhaps uh, some, some benefit, uh, but not the one that was expected. And these Economic failures were spectacular in African opinion at precisely the time when, in Cold War politics, Africans were looking at five-year plans uh, in, in Russia adopted by India and wondering whether they wanted to put together a very much more effective form of development than what was being imposed upon them uh, by colonial rulers. Um, so, given what I have just suggested, um, a twofold argument for decolonization arose. 
out of peculiar weakness as much as out of the strength of any nationalist opposition. First, if colonies in their gold line, and you couldn't even produce groundnuts uh, anyway, um, but indeed a drain, and would become still more of a drain if one had to fight to keep them. Then, secondly, the quicker one got out, conceding to friendly African nationalism before they looked too closely to the east, uh, would be very much in the West's uh, advantage. Uh, so that uh, Lugard's successor in 1955, governor of Nigeria, obviously a very tired man, inevitably the people are going to be disillusioned. It's better that they be disillusioned as a result of the failure of their own people to hand over than as a result of our actions. Quoted in, in a marvellous uh, brief book uh, by Frederick Cooper, um, Africa since 1940, published by the Cambridge University Press. So let me just summarize where um, I think uh, I've gone to so far, that the role of imperialism, the kind of social materials that we had over to nationalism, were uh, extremely uh, ambiguous. Two, two negative points one can make, in that while in 1890 it was reckoned that Africa occupied about 2% of international trade, it occupied the same uh, percentage in 1960, of course global trade had expanded enormously. Uh, in that time, but this is scarcely uh, uh, a revolution. Or if one looks at uh, technology, a more mixed picture here, I think, the transport revolution was undoubtedly extremely important in making it possible to export products rather than labor. But uh, it has also been said that the African peasant went into colonial rule with the hoe and came out of colonial rule with the hoe. There was enormous <coughs> expansion of labor time, but not labor efficiency and the burden fell chiefly on women. Uh, yet there are some perhaps more positive things to be said. African elites, a very small number of course, were by now, by now globally experienced. Um, Leopold Senghor, the first president of Senegal, went to the same lycée as Georges Pompidou, president of France. Um, Kwame Nkrumah and Ben Azikiwe, uh, first uh, presidents of Ghana and Nigeria, respectively, learnt a great deal of their political energy in their American universities. Joe Kenyatta learnt very, in, 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 in very short order that he was not a communist when he went to Moscow in 1930, when he told his uh, communist uh, tutors, liberal imperialism offers more freedom of thought than you do. Um, Julius Nyerere's policies in, in Tanzania cannot be understood, I don't think, uh, when uh, separated from his education in Edinburgh. Uh, Tom Boyer, the trade union leader in, in Kenya, was an enormously powerful uh, man simply because the uh, International Confederation of Free Trade Unions based in the USA saw him as a wonderful uh, weapon against the World Federation of Trade Unions uh, based uh, in Russia. There is an article, Why Does Mandela Read Shakespeare, uh, which is uh, uh, very interesting, but even more interesting, I think, is the fact that his rival, Robert Sabukwe, of the Azania Liberation Front in a party in South Africa, uh, whenever they got into trouble, they said to themselves, let us remember the words of Horatius from Macaulay's Lays of Ancient Rome, how can man die better than facing fearful odds for the ashes of his fathers and the temples of his gods? These people who colonial rulers wanted to keep as native subjects were becoming global citizens, which I think is hugely uh, important in giving them the kind of confidence that they needed. 
Um, and of course, fourthly, Africans had actually become international actors. In the scramble for Africa, not a single African was consulted. It was all done in, in the Congress of Berlin, lines drawn on the map. With decolonization, Africans were wooed uh, by uh, the British, backed partly by uh, the uh, Americans, uh, because they were also being wooed, of course, uh, from uh, Russia uh, and China. Um, but, uh, fifthly, and global trade and finance should really be uh, in, in five, um, the, the real strings of power were, of course, still held uh, in, in Western hands. And there had been no um, profound social or institutional transformation, I don't think. Patronage remained the main access to the state, as it had remained the main access to land or to marriage in pre-colonial Africa, bypassing any kind of top-down reforms such as a late colonial legislature, an independent judiciary, and so on. Regional inequalities that had grown up in the past 70 years led to ethnic resentments. There are problems, therefore, for any nationalism, let alone revolutionary uh, nationalism. Could you possibly create a nationalism of solidarity that created new rights and mutual obligations, or the kind of citizenry uh, alert to its rights that could maintain any kind of political accountability? So, to get towards uh, the, the punchline. Um, what could one expect after all this but very ambiguous forms of, of nationalism? Uh, they faced, I think, uh, five difficulties. The first and the most fundamental, and the one which one could actually stop, is the fact that authority in African society lay very clearly with propertied rural males. Um, household management everywhere is seen as the key, I think, to public authority. It was the moral value of stateless society which Africans had inherited. Set against that youthful, and even worse, female energy uh, in towns, and you've got very real conflicts of ideas and concepts within most African <coughs> nationalisms, if that is what they should be called. And Tom Waller, the man I've already mentioned, the Labour leader in uh, Kenya, secondly, drew, uh, I think, a very interesting consequence from this fundamental uh, <coughs> uh, tension or, or conflict of authority that he argued in, in his book, Freedom and After, that while you could have debate about the roles of authority, the relations between patrons and clients, who owed what to whom, in ethnic public spheres. That was simply something you could not tolerate uh, before independence in a nationalist movement because it would create far too many divisions of opinion and split uh, a nationalist movement which the colonialists coming as ever would no doubt uh, exploit. So that there was a fundamental, I think, shallowness of any kind of nationalist uh, opinion I, uh, of ideas other than the obvious slogans of freedom now and so on um, uh, before uh, independence. So it's very little idea of, of what sort of a future uh, a nationalist movement uh, could uh, itself try to generate. Uh, thirdly, uh, I think far from a national solidarity 
arising between, within colonial boundaries, the regional inequalities which I've mentioned, meant that they were inevitably vanguard movements, and people better educated, richer. Politics costs money, uh, and it, it, only if you are a profitable uh, cocoa grower can you afford to invest in uh, a bus to take people to, uh, to rallies, uh, can you afford to contribute to a party in its press, and so on. So there were bound to be vanguard movements which would set on edge resentments of weaker, poorer regions who had then developed defensive local sovereignties of their own, a very common phenomenon indeed in late colonial Africa. And there was also very little pan-African solidarity either uh, because of very different experiences of these different uh, anti-colonial uh, movements. If you were in, in French West Africa and British West Africa, you had extraordinarily different institutions uh, with which to practice uh, your politics, much stronger local governments uh, in, in British West Africa, for instance, than, than in West. The experience of non-settler and settler colonies was obviously very different too, uh, and uh, the legal constitutional nationalisms that which by and large one power in non-settler Africa were totally and utterly different and largely uncomprehending, I think, of the militant guerrilla nationalisms that were necessary to get rid of the much more obdurate uh, Portuguese uh, or in Algeria and in uh, Rhodesia. Finally, I think, and fifthly, um, nationalist leaders had every reason for nervousness. They were very, really confident, I think, nationalist leaders, despite uh, their bombast. Uh, very conscious, I think, of the insecurities of power, terrified by how easy it was to get rid of the imperial powers, how easy might it be for others to get rid of them, as indeed most of them were, of course, uh, out of power within a very few years of independence by their very small armies. Um, they were running statist economies with government marketing boards for everything you could possibly think of, and facing rising expectations from the populace to whom they had preached the the benefits of independence with an extraordinarily weak administrative apparatus. As the governor of Nigeria had forecast, their disillusionments uh, were going to mount and they were going to be the ones to be blamed. Nonetheless, however, one shouldn't belittle all that they did achieve. There was an extraordinary advance, I think, in welfare before the 1973 oil crisis, a decade of independence. Uh, when the terms of trade largely favourable to Africa before then were overturned. Great uh, increases in literacy and life uh, expectancy, a great decrease in infant mortality, much epidemic disease was also uh, tamed. So finally, if uh, African nationalisms were very ambiguous, so too were any possibilities, I think, for any revolution. Um, Five varieties, uh, I, I think. Um, but first, uh, I, I think one has to uh, demolish uh, the ideas of Franz Fanon, the, the best-known theorist of anti-colonial revolution as the only true nationalism. Um, speaking of his experience in Algeria, um, Franz Fanon's vision was that violence and liberation war would unify a divided people from below, give them the same kind of burning experience. It would re-educate their elites, it would force them to go to school with peasants who were, who were practicing 
and their, their guerrilla war, uh, going to school with peasants not with George Pompidou. Um, but the reality, I think, if one looks at uh, Algeria, uh, Zimbabwe, Angola, Mozambique, um, is that guerrilla war actually fragmented uh, opinion and organization even more than constitutional nationalism did, and uh, gave rise, therefore, to a very authoritarian post-colonial rule uh, needing to uh, destroy its quite well-armed uh, adversaries. And indeed, I think one, uh, South Africa can consider itself very lucky uh, that it collapsed from within uh, with township violence rather than uh, guerrilla um, exiled violence from outside. So, um, with uh, that kind of uh, caution, what other varieties of revolution might there be other than the kind of anti-colonial uh, revolutionary violence that one resulted in Rob Mugabe? Well, the first and, and, and the most general, of course, was the revolution of the bureaucratic bourgeoisie, as uh, Marxist commentators rather dismissively called it at the time. But this was perhaps the, the truest con uh, continuity of imperialism, that the literate minority took over the state as only they knew how uh, to organize it. Not the kind of bourgeois revolution that would lead to other forms. Uh, of uh, revolution as Marxists thought, but the truest continuity, I guess, with imperialism. Another very debatable form of revolution in late colonial times was intra-ethnic, particularly the Mama rising in the Max de people, which I myself uh, have written a bit on, and which is uh, much has been much in the news recently. But far from the peasant beating uh, the patron, the chief achievement of Mao, I think, uh, was not so much Kenya's independence as Kenya's independence under a particularly battle-hardened loyalist elite who knew how to keep uh, people under control. Um, a third form of revolution that, was, uh, that one saw was inter-ethnic inter but also had class um, Characteristics when uh, the Hutu of Rwanda rose against their Tutsi overlords in 1959, just at the moment of independence. When the Hutu had, for the colonial period, been treated largely as an underclass, first by the Germans and by the Belgians, who had encouraged the Tutsi to act uh, as overlords. But then, when a, a, a second uh, generation of Catholic missionaries came in with Catholic socially progressive ideas and started educating the Hutu, then there was a counter-elite which uh, led Hutu peasants against uh, Tutsi overlords, a particularly uh, ruthless uh, form of violence which, alas, has done little more than repeat itself since in alternate ways. Well, there were ethnic nationalisms, uh, the Biafran War uh, most catastrophically, the Katangan secession, uh, the inability of Uganda to know what to do with the kingdom of Uganda at its, at its midst. Raising very fundamental questions which nobody dared answer about what were the limits of self-determination. Who had the right of self-determination in post-colonial Africa? A question which has been swept largely under the carpet. Or there was the Fabian Revolution, uh, the one which everybody loved. We were all tens of miles once. Uh, when Julius Nereri, uh, having read uh, his favorite socialists, having 
uh, imbibed uh, Scottish social equalities uh, in uh, um, Edinburgh, tried to impose peasant cooperation on an extremely unwilling peasant uh, population in Tanzania. He simply didn't understand uh, his peasants, who are, are profoundly unequal uh, in their society, but expect inequality to be matched by mutual obligation as between uh, patron uh, and, and client. And uh, the last thing they want to do is to cooperate with others in uh, managing their own uh, household. Uh, he was greatly misled by the Jews by his uh, Scottish education. Um, none of these could be thought to be revolutionary successes, uh, whether economically or socially, uh, but um, echoing Joan Lai and his opinion on the French Revolution, I think one would say it's obviously far too soon to tell us this. We're talking about matters only 70 years ago. Um, nationalism uh, of the bureaucratic sort, the bureaucratic bourgeois revolution, I think, failed uh, by the 1990s. Um, but allied with a new, more efficient imperialism, China's, it appears that Africa's growth rate has far exceeded uh, expectations, certainly much better than Europe, but that would be difficult. Um, more important, and Kenya is the country I think I know best, uh, Kenyans went through a very disputed, probably fraudulent election only two or three months ago. Five years ago, when they experienced the same, they killed each other. This time they have not. They have adopted a new constitution. They which has devolved power, has separated powers, has greatly decentralized the powers of the presidency, they are beginning to learn to negotiate together. And this, it seems to me, is the story of the beginning, perhaps, of a national culture. So on that possibly hopeful note, I end. <laughs>